Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in machine learning and AI? Sure. I guess I guess it all kind of started in high school. Uh, I always played music, uh, and my dad was an engineer. And the compromise of that when I was going into college was electrical engineering. I really wanted to make guitar pedals. I wanted to learn about how amplifiers worked. And then that kind of got into more signal processing and algorithms, which led to a lot of parameter tuning by hand. Okay. Um, if you want a delay pedal, you know, you have all these different knobs and whatnot. And I started doing some more stuff around beat tracking and tempo tracking for running to music. And it was like, I spent so much time designing these algorithms by hand. It's like a lot of the tradition for a lot of digital signal processing things. And that was right around the time that machine learning really started to pick up. And it was like collecting data for these things and then training an algorithm. It just simplified the process so much. I was like, well, this is a no brainer. I can have the system that I want to do all these cool things, but leveraging these kind of like elegant data-driven solutions that freed me up to go running and play music and do all these other wow. things and just, you know, have these systems work. And this is all while you were in school? Yeah. So I did a master's down at the University of Miami in the really great music tech program down there and got to do a little bit more with running and music and worked with the music therapy department and then parlayed that into a PhD at New York University. Okay. Where I got to work with uh, Juan Pablo Bello and Jan Lecun a little bit. Oh, wow. Which really kind of pivoted it even further. Okay. So that was really when it was, I took a pretty formational machine learning class with Jan my first semester at NYU. Nice. And kind of put me off That's on the That's the way path. to get started. Huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty pretty serendipitous. I didn't fully appreciate what I was getting myself into at the time. Uh-huh. It was right around 2009, 2010. But for me, it was always much more about computer visions, doing a lot of things with images and audio. It had some stuff around speech recognition, but music was always kind of, you know, lagging behind. Yeah. So for me, I always wanted to say, you know, can we, similar to computer vision or ASR, recognize chords and music? I'm a guitarist. Can you show me how to play this song automatically? Right. Can you show me where the beats, the bars, the chords are? Give me, can I have a playlist of just choruses, these kinds of things. Nice. So when you really start to think about the opportunities around music, leveraging things like deep learning and machine learning, uh, you can, you know, the imagination can run wild, the kinds of things you can do with that. Awesome. So yeah. tell us a little bit about what you're up to nowadays at Spotify. Sure. Did you go to Spotify right after grad school? No, I spent some time at a small music ed tech startup that was trying to do things around optical music recognition. So in the same way that you could do document scanning, one of the core pieces of technology that we were working on was if you took a picture of a sheet of music, could you turn it into MIDI so that, say, kids could learn how to play any piece of music at their disposal and then be able to, you know, on the longer arc, give them feedback about how they're doing and kind of taking it from there. It seems like that should be fairly straightforward. (laughs) So... You'd think that. One of the really, really interesting things about music in all of its forms, and I'll mention this tomorrow, is that it's so fundamentally intelligent that, you know, when you have even just a piece of music for a single voice, monophonic instrument, you don't have polyphony or these other things. You actually have, instead of OCR for being generally one-dimensional, it's linear and you'll span a vertical axis. But music, you actually have a two-dimensional grid that moves linearly with 
these really complicated links backward and forward. So if you have DSL senos or codas or repetitions or multiple endings, it turns into death by a million paper cuts. Because one of the things you'll find is triplets will be notated in the first measure and then none after because it's cheaper that way to not print these additional threes on all these things. But there, any musician would kind of know any that they're there. Any intelligent musician would know Got that it. that was there. Got it. Or you'll run into these other really interesting common cases, there aren't even edge cases, where for children's music, they won't notate rests because they're trying to simplify the musical surface. Okay. So it's, well, it's in four, but you'll have these two notes here and then those two notes in the upper okay. staff. And a machine is like, I guess they're the same? Yeah. So having all of these, and then it doesn't have a ton of data for supervised training. Right. And it creates this, this really, really interesting, challenging, but fundamentally intelligent problem. Interesting. Yeah. It's um, one of those things that, you know, to, to crack from a very, like, human interest level. There's a ton of music that just hasn't been brought into the 21st century yet, you know. Mm-hmm. Everything that was notated from Gregorian chants all the way up to kind of now where we've started to shift away from notated music to more recorded music or digital audio workstations, Ableton-style project files, where there isn't really an artifact of the music except the recording. There's all this older stuff that could be brought into the future for creative purposes, musicology, and kind of more anthropological considerations. Okay. Interesting. So I did an interview with Doug Eck at Google Brain, Project Magenta, mm-hmm. uh, and he had an interesting presentation at another conference a few months ago that talked about even the step beyond what I, what you're just describing. Like once you have the sheet music or you can describe the music to the computer accurately, how do you then get it to play expressively? And they've been doing some interesting things there. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's yeah. interesting stuff. Yeah. I mean, Expressivity and music creation and composition, it's, it's so interesting to really dig into because I think it cuts to the core of humanity. There's been so much amazing work around game playing and AI recently, you know, AlphaGo, Atari, but you have these well-defined objective functions, you know, right. make the score high, win the game. Right. That. So you have these extrinsic motivators that fit pretty well into a reinforcement learning formulation. Right. But music... The most interesting things are internal. They're intrinsic. Yeah. It's the, the novelty and the surprise of, oh, I didn't see that chord coming. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're sitting in your room when Hendrix was really just, just digging in, just sinking his teeth in deep to a solo, it was for him. It was for his heart. Mm-hmm. And you could think about having these feedback loops for listens on Spotify or revenue generated, but these aren't really what cuts the, to the heart of creativity and expression. Like, what are, you, what are you getting after? And I think that's going to be one of the really interesting challenges as we start to move into that next stage of kind of like really autonomous or you know, things that are self-directed in the AI space. Mm-hmm. Why is it doing it? What motivates it? Does it right. have this notion of self? So when you think about elements of, I think, music, humor, sarcasm, these kinds of things kind of start to encroach on that in a way that a lot of the the recent history of machine learning hasn't gotten to yet. Interesting. Interesting that you put sarcasm in that bucket as a New Yorker living (laughs) in the Midwest. I find that sarcasm is underappreciated in a lot of places. And I would love to dig deep into AI and sarcasm. (laughs) I think it's it's an East Coast, Northeast kind of thing. And I joke often, I have nothing to back this up, that it's probably related to just 
you know, local climates and it's a way to kind of deal with a oh, great day, great weather we're having. Right. <laughs> and it's just gray snow and there's sludge yeah. and all, all the street corners are backed up and right. whatnot. But you don't have that same thing on the West coast where it's yeah. beautiful every day. Yeah. Sarcasm doesn't land the same way right. with native Californians. <laughs> so true. So at Spotify, you work, what aspect of this problem are you working on there? Sure. So I think at a higher level, to the extent that I can kind of delve into I work on a team of researchers where we are building algorithms that can understand music content at scale. So some of the obvious applications would be to fit into, can we better understand users? Can we help provide better recommendations? A lot of recommender systems right now have gotten very far by looking at how users, consumers, listeners interact with content. Right. Whether it's purchased at the same time or in the same catalog or they've been grouped into the same basket or playlist or things like that. You can get really far without having to look inside the box. Mm-hmm. So the metaphor I like to make is algorithms for content work as well as they do for, say, Amazon when you can kind of just you don't have to look inside the box. But when you really want to, say, more deeply understand a user and what they're after, it's like, what color is the shoe? Is it felt? Is it vinyl? How does someone interact with music? Mm-hmm. Do they really gravitate toward an artist? Or is it lyrical content? Is it about the harmonic content? Because one of the things that's really interesting about music in particular is your ability to enjoy it is tightly coupled to how well you can understand it and to what extent you're surprised by it. So... For example, there's uh, one artist called Marsbo. Marsbo. And for the untrained listener, it's going to sound a little bit like noise art. Okay. But if you go to a Marsbo <laughs> concert, there will be people that are just totally rocking out and they're in it and they get it because they, they have a model and an understanding for what's going on. Yeah. So you can use how people interact with content as a proxy for what they understand and what they can relate to. How explicit is that understanding for them, though? A lot of people can't. Well, I, I can't speak for Marsbo fans. Okay. Um, <laughs> but one of the really interesting things about music is that a lot of ways that we describe it are so personal and occasionally they're you know, cultural or they're niche. Right. So you'll find that in certain subgenres, you know, certain words are used certain ways. Right. And you'll see things pop up. Oh, this playlist is on fleek. And right. it's like you'll find that some of the language and the semantics their course intermediaries to describe the thing that you actually mean. You're like, oh, I, I love the part of this song where it really just makes my heart pump. Mm-hmm. You're like, well, what is it? I have no idea. I have no language to describe these things, right. which makes education and visualization and interaction with the content a really right. interesting area for some of this content understanding at scale. Spotify, why do I like this song? Yeah. Are there other songs out there that you don't know about that would make you feel, have such a strong physiological reaction in a similar way? Am I going to be able to ask Spotify that? Why do I like this song? Wouldn't that be a great question that would to be have a, answered? That would be awesome. Yeah. I mean, especially because as I hear you describe this, I am not a music connoisseur by any stretch of the imagination, but it resonates for me that a lot of that is not really having... I guess there's when we talked about understanding, right, there's you know, the impact that music has on you and kind of its ability to move you. And then your ability to understand it moving you and how and why and when. And then the next level is like your ability to articulate all that. And I feel like for me, if I was able to maybe come at it from the the back and be able to articulate and understand kind of these things at a conceptual level, that might help me to connect to other types of music. 
And it would be really cool if I could ask, if Spotify could basically teach me this. And I would actually take it to the logical conclusion because beyond that, then you could say, all this music was composed by another person. So generally when you're composing as a composer, you're pulling upon all of your experience and your own surprise and novelty, but that's going to relate and land with an audience in a very particular way. So when you think about an artist composing for their fan base or in a genre or a style or trying to achieve a certain outcome, mm-hmm. you know, you might say, you know, I really want to drop, I want a, a verse that's minor so we can step into a major chorus because people will feel that as this release intention. But the only way that that can be conveyed appropriately is if everyone has that similar expectation. Right. So you're playing off of certain kind of musical behaviors that are encultured in certain ways, which also makes music at the level of like a global culture really interesting or microculture as you start to be able to connect the dots across really niche genres that you know didn't have any bandwidth in more of a mainstream music era and are you a musician personally do you yeah. play uh, what do you play i play everything i can get my hands on okay. i grew up playing saxophone for about a decade switched over to guitar okay. and then guitar into voice and i've been learning drums for the last couple of years and any way that I can kind of express myself with sound is, is a good time. And when you're expressing yourself with sound, do you think about it in the way that you previously described? Like, I'm going to try and hit this chorus and I don't even have, I can't even, my, my ability with the words is so poor. I can't even repeat what you just said. <laughs> but I get at least the impression that I have from, you know, popular media, TV, whatever, is that, you know, they just go into a room and then music comes out and not like, oh, I'm going to nail them with this crescendo right here. I think everyone's process is different. And I mean, as my PhD was in a music program, so I had to take some graduate level theory courses, which actually gave me not a perfect vocabulary for it, but a better understanding of the things that I had developed an intuitive feel for. And I certainly, I don't think about it that way in the moment. When I'm playing music, I'm very much in it. You may have heard of like the idea of like creative flow, where it's like time flies and whatnot. So I think for myself, kind of coming back at it as an editor, I can think about it like, oh, you know, like this is a really good raw idea, but I can massage this in a way, you know, if I piece these things together, here's a really interesting musical pun. I don't think I'm more in the moment. It's a little bit more like I surprised myself. Oh, that was neat. I have to record everything and then go back through with a little bit more of a higher planning process. So I may be getting away here and turning this into This Week in Music and uh, <laughs> they're related and the arts. I contend they're related. <laughs> but you're speaking here at the conference. What's your talk on? So uh, I'm talking about one project that we've recently published out of our uh, newly minted music understanding group at Spotify around primarily singer vocal separation from recorded music. I lovingly refer to it, hat tip to a colleague from Miami, but it's unbaking the cake in a way. So in recorded music, you have these... This is basically acapella from any song, any track? Or instrumental from any song. So you could isolate the vocalist, you could remove the vocalist. It's a little bit of like the audio processing wizardry that, you know, if you looked at computer vision, there have been some amazing, really interesting things with style transfer, or texture mapping. So we took some recent advances with the picks-to-picks and the unit architecture and have adapted that to music processing. But the thing that really kind of made it work for us is that you know we have this really large music catalog. Mm-hmm. And one of the big bottlenecks for source separation for a long time has been data. And we were, we were brainstorming one day and it's like, you know, deep learning is great when you have data for training. 
And you have two options when it comes to data. You can curate it or you can get clever and try to harvest it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of computer vision stuff has gotten really far by using text around images and leveraging these other kind of serendipitous signals that occur as a byproduct of other kinds of things. Mm -hmm. uh, Spotify did a similar thing with playlisting. Mm -hmm. So one of those signals we were able to harvest is that instrumental versions actually occur with a non-negligible frequency. Right. So if you have, say, a web scale music collection, you can actually end up with about a month or two's worth of straight audio for training these kinds of algorithms. So we were able to do some. What does that work out to on a like a percentage basis? Like what percentage of your catalog has instrumental versions? A very small portion. Okay. I probably couldn't give you a, a number either from memory or other reasons. But it's it's small. But when you have a large enough catalog, it becomes sufficient. So we end up with a couple of months of audio, and we're able to train these algorithms to both isolate and remove vocals from a mix. So we nudged the state of the art a little bit versus some other models that have been published. Well, let's jump into that. So you mentioned you mentioned Pix2Pix yeah. and another one, Unit. Yeah, so the Unit architecture uh, preceded the Pix2Pix work. Okay. So um, tell us about those two. Sure. So the Unit architecture, actually taking a step back, one of the ways that a lot of, uh, you can generally call it signal processing in machine learning, has worked for a while is the idea that if you could have some kind of compressing autoencoder, Reducing the dimensionality, you'll preserve the attributes that are most important. You can back it out, and then by minimizing some loss over the reconstruction, then you can start doing some interesting things, fiddling with your intermediary representations. But what ends up happening is, especially for audio, a lot of the, the high-frequency detail in the outputs is just lost. So it works pretty well for general shapes, but sharp edges, these kinds of things fall away in these autoencoder and butterfly-style architectures. Okay. The UNet takes this butterfly-style architecture, folds it over into a V or a U, however you want. And butterfly, like, is the visual. You got this wide input. You're yeah. kind of compressing down the dimensionality and yeah. you're fanning it back out. Exactly. Yeah, like a bow tie. But if you if you were to take the butterfly or the bow tie and fold the wings on itself, what you can do is you can take the... This is a convolutional architecture. You can take the feature maps from the forward path and concatenate them with the feature maps from the reverse path or the inverse path. And what that ends up doing is providing a lot more detail and this like more fine-grained granularity so that when you, in source separation, what you generally try to do is produce a mask. And then you apply that mask over, say, an input time frequency representation like a spectrogram. Spectrograms are kind of like an equalizer curve drawn out over time. So you can weight the relative contribution of each frequency bin in time just as a zero to one. So we use this unit architecture to produce a mask over the input representation. Let's back up a second. Sure. Because I'm, I'm losing. Uh, what does it mean to map the, what does it mean to take the feature map and circle it back on itself? Sure. I think that's the way you said it. So generally in a convolutional architecture, you'll have a bank of kernels. You'll take each kernel and you'll convolve it with an input representation. And you'll get out generally like a three-dimensional tensor of feature maps. So if your input is 2D, you'll have uh, k kernels by x by y. And on the inverse path, you can, you're can you also producing these feature map tensors. So with the corresponding layer on the inverse path, you can concatenate the input feature maps with the reverse feature maps to, uh, along that kth dimension, which becomes then an input you can convolve another kernel matrix with, or kernel tensor, I guess. So it's kind of like you have your forward path features and your inverse path features being processed at the same time. So it allows the kind of like 
the composition of parts intuition for a, a deep architecture, that information is propagating all the way to the, what is effectively this higher level representation of the network okay. while preserving some of that fine-grained detail on the way back. And what we find is that the, the masks that are produced by this architecture do have a lot more detail in what they're able to pinpoint in terms of the frequencies. So it's able to really dial in the components that are contributing to, say, singing voice. So the way this works is you can train one of these unit architectures for pinpointing the voice, or you can train a separate one for isolating the voice. If you had different data, you could imagine doing something similar for, say, drums or other source-specific architectures. When you're training to pinpoint the voice, are you using like an acapella version as your training data, or are you still using your instrumental and somehow like inverting it or something yeah, like that? That's that's a great question. For the work that we published and we'll be presenting at the Izmir conference in Suzhou, China in the near future, what we actually did was there are far more instrumental versions than acapella versions. So we kind of estimate what the vocals would be by looking at the positive difference between a full mix mm -hmm. and then the corresponding instrumental. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like a proxy for what the voice would be. Yeah. Which is not surprising why we get much better vocal removal results, mm -hmm. because we're training on the actual instrumental spectra than the vocal, which is estimated. Mm -hmm. But it's a really interesting point for future work to say, you know, what other kinds of content do we have at our disposal that we can kind of fold in to this kind of work? So we've got some really encouraging results. I've got some demos that I'll be sharing a little bit later. I imagine they'll be out on the internet in not too long. And so what else? Are there any other things that you talked about uh, during your talk? or that you're planning to talk about during your talk you haven't talked yet? I guess the only other thing I would mention is being that we're at a really pivotal time for a lot of machine learning uh, and artificial intelligence research as we really start to frame this conversation. It's been an interest of mine for a while now, that, like what we discussed earlier, this idea of creative AI. And I do want to take the time tomorrow to just you know, have that shameless plug. You know, Music is a really, really interesting domain. Mm -hmm. It doesn't necessarily have the same societal impacts that autonomous vehicles could have in terms of saving lives. But in a lot of ways, music does have that human power in much more of a uh, emotional and kind of cultural way. Mm -hmm. So as we start to think about like, what other ways do we want to tackle artificial intelligence? Like, can we really study music without inherently studying humanity and kind of the intelligence that we've been endowed with? And one of the questions that comes up for me in this conversation is a little bit out of left field, but what in your view is the, you know, kind of open source as a concept has like swept over a bunch of different industries and you know, areas of human activity, right? Is there an open source? What is the open source for music? And the thought that preceded that was, it'd be kind of interesting if, you know, if in, in some period of time, a musician delivered not this like one final thing, but you know, there was like a almost like a project file for your digital workstation that had you can pull out the drums if you wanted to you can pull out you could isolate all different kinds of things because it would it followed some kind of open source you know ideology or something like that is there an analog like that for music or what's the closest we get i think that's a really really fascinating idea and you know i have to smile a little bit when you say what's the analog to that in a lot of ways playing music together is that analog. Mm -hmm. You know, for a while, ever since it was music publishing or sound recording, it's been really interesting what sampling, remixing, reuse means for music because everything that you compose, create, and share is an amalgamation of all your prior experiences. Mm -hmm. So 
Larry so a little Lessig. bit of inherent open sourceness to music from yeah, that perspective. Exactly. Larry Lessig wrote a really great book called Remix that touches on a lot of these interesting things, both from a legal but also a philosophical and kind of cultural perspective. Focus particularly on music or uh, more generally art, on he touches okay. on touches on things. So okay. there have been some famous mashup artists like Greg Gillis and Girl Talk. I'm testing my memory at this point, but there's a famous composer who decried the rise of sound recordings and that it was gonna like change what reuse and remixing really meant. And we've we've seen that get a little bit murky as copyright laws change right. and whatnot. But yeah, it's music wants to be open source by yeah. nature. Yeah. So I, I think the analog is analog music. Okay. It's the acoustic signal. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how music evolves along with uh, machine learning and AI. Yeah, I think they have a bright future together. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Eric. Thank you so much, Sam. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. Thanks to you, this podcast finished the year as a top 40 technology podcast on Apple Podcasts. My producer says that one of his goals this year is to crack the top 10, and to do that, we will need your help. Please head on over to the podcast app, rate the show, hopefully we've earned your five stars, leave us a glowing review, and share it with your friends, family, coworkers, Starbucks baristas, Uber drivers, everyone. Every review and rating goes a long way, so thanks in advance. For more information on Eric or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 98. Of course, we'd be delighted to hear from you, either via a comment on the show notes page or via Twitter at at twimlai. Thanks once again for listening and catch you next time.